Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Hi, yeah, my name is Vanessa Lem. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of New South Wales. And Right, and you listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. <laughs> From now on, <laughs> yes. And welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Nature is the common universal language understood by all. Kathleen Rain, Selected Poems, 1988. Now, if you'd like to listen to any of the previous episodes of Radical Philosophy, you can. All you need to do is to go to the 3CR website and on the right-hand side, there's a link there for the Facebook page. Now, you don't need to be on Facebook yourself to access Facebook. So you can go to the Facebook page and scroll down and just click on any of the interviews that you'd like to listen to. And today... We're going to be listening to an interview about nature versus nurture. And I'm speaking to Dr. Kate Lynch about nature versus nurture. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me. Now, what was it that inspired you to study nature versus nurture? Uh, So I started my work in philosophy just looking at causation and causal reasoning uh, more generally in the sciences. And as I was doing that, I kind of found that in biology and particularly in genetics, there was an area that needed big conceptual clean-up when when they came to talking about what a genetic cause was or what an environmental cause was. So I applied what I'd learnt as a philosopher studying causation into this field and then ended up studying a biology degree alongside my PhD in philosophy, which has now led me down to the path where I'm about to start work as an experimental biologist. I'm trying to keep in mind as I'm doing that all these larger philosophical questions from my previous training. Yeah, it's fairly connected, isn't it, philosophy and science? Yeah, much more than you than you realise, I think, when you start off studying just philosophy or just science. Yeah, I actually had quite an interest in genetics myself and I was when I was at school and I ended up breeding rats in the science lab and I ended up I think with about 45 rats and I was breeding them to get different colors and then realized that I had a lot of rats to look after and my science teacher suggested that he euthanize all the rats to use uh, uh, for dissection for the other students and that's when I sort of came to the realization that these were these were little beings with their own personalities and 
that I'd, I'd brought them into the world and I thought, you know, this is quite an awful thing to happen. So what I, what I did was I said no and I took the 45 of them home and didn't breed any more and fortunately they only lived two to three years or else I'd, <laughs> I'd still have 45 rats. So, <laughs> so you must have had very tolerant parents, that's very cool. I um, hid them in the garden shed. I don't think my mother <laughs> knew exactly how many I had. But, <laughs> but I, I think then that was when I, I actually realised the connection between science and philosophy, I thought, or ethics, and is it ethical to actually breed animals and, and kill them? Well, that's right, and, that, and bioethics is another huge area of philosophy that I'm not so involved in, but I do advocate as being super important, especially when it comes to all the new technology we're coming up with um, related to genetics and genetic engineering. There are major ethical implications for that, so um, it is a, a blossoming field, I think, bioethics and philosophy. Could you explain the term heritability? Right, so heritability is this very particular statistical measure um, that's most often invoked when people talk about genetic causation and the way it's used in the sciences is quite different to the way people make causal claims about genes in the media, which is one of the reasons I got so interested in the topic. When you hear or read a study about the genetic causes of schizophrenia or genetic causes of autism or depression, it's usually because they've been estimated as being significantly heritable using this particular statistic. And what this statistic means is that at a population level, it seems to be genetic differences that are causing differences in whatever behaviour or trait is being studied. So, for instance, if you were trying to estimate the heritability of height and you've got a population of people and you see that they're all different heights, the research question would be, well, what is it that's making people differ in how tall they are? Is it because they all have different genes or is it because they all have different environments? And it turns out that for height, there's quite a high heritability. So about 80% of the variation in height comes from having different genes. But what happens is that when these statistics are translated into the media, people try to apply them at an individual level, which doesn't make as much conceptual sense. So, for instance, in my case, I am 165 centimetres tall, but that doesn't mean that 80% of that height, so 132 centimetres, are not genetic, and then the rest is environmental. Um, at an individual level, it doesn't make sense to break it down using that statistic. So what are dominant and recessive genes? So heritable traits, the ones I was just talking about, are typically what we call polygenic which means that there's multiple genes that contribute towards that trait as well as the effects of the environment. But in contrast to this, uh, what's called Mendelian traits, and these are the ones that are either dominant or recessive. Mendelian traits are typically invariant to environmental changes. So if you have a particular gene, you pretty much always get that trait. And the dominant and recessive patterns occur because we all inherit two copies of each gene. So... The way our system works is that we inherit one copy from mum and one copy from dad. Uh, we call each copy an allele. And then there are all these different ways that these two copies can interact. So sometimes both of the copies can contribute, and this is called co-dominance. So, for instance, if, you had a, if you're looking at flowers, the colour of flowers, say, and you have one parent which is red and one parent that's white, if those two alleles were co-dominant, then you'd end up with offspring that have red and white patches, so they express both versions of that trait. 
you can also have a version of interaction called incomplete dominance where the offspring get kind of a blending effect. So if you've had a red parent and a white parent, then you'd end up with pink offspring. But most of the time, when you have these two copies of the gene, one will dominate over the other. And this is where we get those terms dominant and recessive. So, for instance, in humans, whether your earlobes are detached or attached is determined by just a single gene and detached earlobes, so not attached to your, to your neck, dominates over having attached earlobes. So how is a trait genetically carried? So that's quite a complicated question, but basically we have on our, we have our, inside every single cell, we've got the entire set of the human genome, so it's about 20,000 genes, and when we create sperm and eggs, the two copies of the genes get cut in half, so they kind of randomly shuffle their material around and make novel combinations and then cut that amount of half in that DNA in half so that when an egg and sperm then combine, we're going back to that normal amount of DNA again. Um, and then when an egg and sperm combine, there's even more variation generated from these novel combinations. Um, and that's how we can account for so much uniqueness in the human population. For only 20,000 genes, all these possible combinations results in a multifactorial amount of variation. So what type of traits are genetically determined? So the term genetically determined is a little bit contentious, but generally when we talk about genetic determination, we mean those Mendelian type traits that, dom- that have either that dominant or recessive inheritance pattern um, and that they're present no matter what the environment is. So generally with genetically determined traits, it can be things like attached or detached earlobes, but more commonly it'll be many diseases. So cystic fibrosis, hemochromatosis, muscular dystrophy, they're all examples of genetically determined traits. But if you have the gene, then there's not very many environmental very um, interventions you can make to change that phenotype. Now, there's been quite a bit of discussion about whether sexual preference is genetic or environmental. Yeah, this is a very tricky and, of course, a very contentious topic because a lot of this debate is coming out of whether people think that there is a choice to have a particular sexual preference or whether there's free will issues involved in sexual preference. So looking at the genetic causes of really complex phenotypes like sexual preference in humans is very complicated. That's a lot of the reason is because we can't figure out, in, we can't do experiments in human populations to figure out what causes what. We can only look at correlations. So, for instance, obesity and depression are correlated, but we don't know whether this is because obese people are depressed, maybe because of the way they're discriminated about their weight, or whether they weigh whatever they do because they're depressed and perhaps they don't exercise and, and don't eat so well um, because of that depression. So some of the things we do know about sexual preference when it comes to correlation, so there, are, there have been two regions on the human genome where there is a correlation with um, same-sex attraction. One of them is a region on chromos- the X chromosome and another one is on chromosome 8. But these studies are still quite contentious. Some of the results have been able to be replicated in other populations and then other studies have not been able to replicate those results. Right, yeah, I know my chiropractor who's a lesbian is an identical twin and her identical twin sister is straight. 
Yeah, so twin studies are another great source of um, trying to get to the bottom of genetic causes in humans. And there is um, an association actually in twins for sexual preference. So if your um, identical twin is homosexual, then you'll have you'll be 33% more likely to be homosexual yourself compared to others in the population. But because that's not 100%, and we know that identical twins do share 100% of their genes, uh, we think that there's other factors going on. Yeah, I suppose there's a case of not all the genes are triggered at the same time in their life as as well. So, you know, it's very difficult to prove that it isn't genetic, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There's a, a whole new field of research at the moment called epigenetics, which is interested in exactly that, and that's gene expression. So there's the difference between possessing a certain gene and having it expressed, as you say, or switched on. And part of the things that switch these genes on we call epigenetics. So these are other kinds of chemicals that we can get from our environment but also can be inherited from our parents. Yeah, I think um, Huntington's uh, disease, as it used to be known, or Huntington's career, that is actually a genetically carried condition, but it's really potluck whether you actually show symptoms when you're a few years old or you can actually probably die in your 90s and never show any symptoms of Huntington's. Yeah, and that's where epigenetics is still this big, real kind of mysterious field in biology right now. It's it's almost what genetics was in the 80s and 90s when we were first starting to sequence the human genome. We just don't really know much about how these genes are getting switched on or off and what the important factors either in the environment or in utero are. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr. Kate Lynch about nature versus nurture. It's, it's very common within my family for people to have red hair, but there doesn't seem to be any set pattern in which the, the red hair occurs. Okay, so red hair is uh, generally determined by what we were talking about before with those dominant and recessive Mendelian traits. Um, there's a single gene called the melanocortin receptor gene, which is on chromosome 16 in humans, where if you have a certain variant of this gene, it decreases what's called the eumelanin, a particular type of pigment in the body, so you get paler skin, but then it also increases a different type of melanin in your hair, giving you the red hair. Now, the reason that you might not be able to see clear patterns in your family tree is because it's a recessive trait. So that means in order to have the red hair and to have the pale skin, you need to get two copies of that gene, one from each parent, which means that either both your parents have red hair or both your parents are carriers of the red hair gene so that they have one copy and that their red hair is not being expressed in their generation. Right now, I was watching a program where identical twins were interviewed about their health and one twin was very fit, went to the gym most days, ate a really healthy diet and the other twin was, you know, never exercised, ate loads of junk food. So it wasn't much of a surprise when the unfit twin had a heart attack but his doctor said that he should call his twin brother and uh, tell him he, he should go and have his heart tested as well. And even though he was quite resistant to the idea, but when he did, the, he had a blockage in almost exactly the same place as his brother. So that's a, 
a really interesting case and I don't know the details about that case exactly, um, but it sounds like a, a combination there of genetic predisposition and then just a little bit of strange coincidence, I think, in that example. Because th things like heart conditions, they are they do have a reasonable heritability, so it's somewhere between 35 and 50%. So it is right that even a healthy twin who had a risk factor um, should be getting tests and, and would share that kind of genetic background. But the environment certainly plays a significant role for things like heart conditions too. So that is surprising that both the healthy twin and the, the twin that ate a lot of junk food um, would come up with the same heart condition at the same time. Are personality traits genetic or environmental? Uh, so this is where I'm going to have to give you a really stock standard boring response, which is basically we don't know and it depends. But in terms of heritability, looking at complex traits like personality traits, they're not often as studies as, as things like mental illness, which are a lot easier to measure or to diagnose or to categorise. So we know that for things like mental illness, there is for things like depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, there is high heritability. And then for some other phenotypes like aggressiveness, risk-taking behaviours, um, extroversions and other, there's also been heritability estimates. But the problem here is that something having a high heritability statistic isn't always synonymous with it being genetically caused. So we infer that genes make a difference when we compare individuals from the same family or we compare twins and we think, well, if they, they all share the same genes, then it must be the genes causing the similarity in these traits. But actually, members of the same family, and especially twins, also share what we call a common environment. So it's very hard to pull apart whether the similarity in things like personality traits are due to that similarity in genetic background or whether they're due to a similarity in shared environment, like the developmental environment. Now, another strange genetic occurrence is, as I was told quite a few years ago, that if I saw a ginger-coloured cat, it would definitely be a male. But now it seems to be that if it's a ginger-coloured cat, it's 50% chance of being male or female. So how could this occur? Okay, so... It, there is a chance that you can have you can have both male and female ginger cats, but you're more likely to be a male cat if you're a ginger cat, and that's because the orange gene for cats is carried on the X chromosome. So in cats, as well as mammal, other mammals like humans, sex determination sex is determined by the X and Y chromosomes. So females have two copies of the X chromosome and males have one copy of the X chromosome and one copy of the Y chromosome. So in male cats, they only need to get that one copy of the X and whatever colour is being carried on the X chromosome will be the colour that they express. So it's much more easy for a male cat to become orange because they only need that one copy of the X. One thing you can know about cats by looking at their colour is that if you have a cat which is a mix of orange and black patches, so like my cat, who's a tortoise shell cat, she's got black and orange patches, um, then they'll always be a female because black and orange are both carried on the X chromosome and to have both versions of that colour, you need to have two copies of that chromosome. That's, that's quite interesting. Is there any real hard evidence that something is 100% genetic or 100% environmental. I mean, even in cases where they have actually studied twins and triplets, I think there was one, one case where 
there were there were identical triplets and they were all separated in and adopted into different families at birth and they managed to find each other because two of them went to the same university and then friends had actually seen the other one somewhere and mistaken him for one of the other two so they actually got together and when all their parents got together they they were actually quite amazed at the similarity in traits that really you know that they couldn't have put down to environment because uh, they they didn't even know that they were part of being identical triplets. Yeah, well, that that's quite an amazing and uh, insightful story. Separate um, twins and triplets that have been separated at birth, because then we really can separate out things like shared environment from um, the genetic contribution. But in terms of saying that something is a hundred percent genetic or a hundred percent environmental, it it kind of depends on what environments you've exposed that individual to. So for some of those classic Mendelian traits, like the diseases, you can have the genes for that trait and almost always get the phenotype, that disease phenotype. But then there are certain cases where if you intervene on the environment in the right way, you'll change that gene expression. So for example, phenylketonuria was what was used to be called an inborn error of metabolism where it's inherited in that Mendelian dominant recessive pattern and if you have the genes of phenylketonuria, generally you'd have this severe mental retardation um, and you'd have a developmental disability. These days we know that phenylketonuria um, is the inability to have a, to normally break down certain proteins in foods. So what we can do is test children which have these particular genes, modify their environment from an early age and they grow up developmentally normal just like any other child without that particular um, mutation in the gene. So what we used to think was 100% genetic, we've now found the right environmental intervention to, to change that. Right, that, that's the um, blood test that babies are given, aren't they, when they're one or two days old? Is that the one yes. to determine that condition? So that's quite amazing how a genetic condition can be controlled with diet. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a really great breakthrough um, for people carrying this disorder, of course. Um, and hopefully, instead of looking... Well, there's kind of two options at the moment for treating genetic disorders from the ground up. So one way is to intervene on the genome and sort of genetically engineer children before they are born, which is, of course, very controversial, or to subject people to gene therapy, which can be quite dangerous. And the alternative is to find that correct environmental intervention so that people with a certain genotype are just growing up with a slightly altered environment which makes it easier for them to live and that seems to be the best approach we have at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Well, getting getting back to twins again, I, I did see a documentary on identical twin girls and one was actually adopted into a quite middle-class family and she bought lots of lots of books she loved to read. But when they actually had a look at her twin sister who had gone into a very underprivileged family, they discovered that because she had a local library, she actually went to the library and borrowed books to read. So that sort of it didn't hold her back. But I suppose if you if you had to put her in a different environment where she didn't have access to a library or to borrow books, that would have hindered her development, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the things that behaviour geneticists have 
come to realise more and more as they look for the genetic causes of traits is just how important the developmental environment is. Um, and sometimes this can even be masked when we do heritability estimates because people of certain genetic backgrounds, um, so cultural backgrounds or particular ethnicities, tend to grow up in in particular countries in certain socioeconomic environments and that correlation can really skew what happens when we estimate whether things are being caused by people's genetics or by people's environment. Right, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks, Beth. And I've been speaking to Dr Kate Lynch about nature versus nurture. This is Joan Nessel speaking on and for Radical Philosophy at 3CR. I can remember speaking early when I first arrived uh, to Melbourne at a program called the Women's Shed, and that was my introduction to the wonders of community radio, which are more important in the world now than ever. I really don't like this concept of teaching people to see the person and not the disability. Then why can't people see a person with a disability and not freak out or not feel uncomfortable? You know, it's like that weird backhanded compliment that we get when people say, you know, oh, I don't think of you as disabled because you're my friend or you're really cool or because you're just like me. And can we not be all of those things? Can we not be cool and likeable and people's friends but not also be proud of our disabilities? I kind of hope that we can. On Sunday, November the 1st, five members of the fascist group United Patriots Front the UPF gained entry into 3CR and filmed throughout the building without permission. In an effort to intimidate the station and its programmers, then they posted the video on their Facebook page. The UPF also made an unwelcome visit to the Melbourne Anarchist Club on the same day. 3CR rejects these tactics of intimidation and expresses our solidarity with other groups subjected to harassment and vilification from groups such as the UPF, who are of concern because of their racist, Islamophobic and anti-Semitic beliefs, hostility to the left and capacity for violence. 3CR reasserts our commitment to progressive politics and our core mission of providing a voice to people denied a voice elsewhere in the media and in society. Affiliated with the station or a diverse range of community organisations, from trade unions to housing groups to music appreciation clubs. We stand by our commitment to provide a voice for Muslims, newly arrived migrants, Indigenous people, unions, women, queers, the working class, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and people with a disability. As such, we will continue to do what we have always done, uphold basic principles of human dignity, diversity and fairness. We call on all listeners and supporters to join us in rejecting this amateur schoolyard bullying and the politics of fear that fosters bigotry and the marginalisation of vulnerable minorities. 3CR, where diverse communities work in solidarity with each other. Hi, I am Kate Rigby, Professor of Environmental Humanities at Monash University and I'm a fan of 3CR Community Radio which is 8.55 on your AM dial. And I recommend, in particular, Radical Philosophy. And that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Dr Kate Lynch for her interview and you also for your company. And stay on the line for Democracy Now!